Heads up, this episode contains spoilers and descriptions of fictional self-harm. Stockton is a mid-sized city in central California. Humble place, Gen Xers like me might know it mainly as the birthplace of the band Pavement. And back in 1974, a producer named Charles Mulvihill found himself there working on a movie. Yeah, 1974, I was producing a film called uh, Bomb for Glory in Stockton, California. And uh, it was after we had filmed, it was at night, and walking down the street, I noticed a showing of a film that I'd worked on years before. It was surprising for me to see that film playing in a theater. I didn't know that it had even been re-released. So I stumbled in and was shocked to see that there were quite a few people. They looked hippie-ish. I mean, you know, they just had, you had that vibe. But there must have been 40 or 50 people, you know, in the theater. And it was a weeknight, which was even more surprising. Charles took a seat in the back. The lights went down. And they were totally into the film. They got all the nuances and laughed and removed at the right moments. And it was my really my kind of my first inkling that the movie might be around. But I can't say I was smart enough to think that it was going to be around for 50 years. The movie was called Harold and Maude. Charles was shocked by the Stockton audience's reaction because when the film was first released, it was a box office disaster. And yeah, he couldn't have possibly fathomed it was now on its way to immortality thanks to another humble theater in another humble town nearly 2,000 miles away. I'm Rico Galliano, and welcome back to the Mubi Podcast. Mubi is the best way outside a theater to see beautiful hand-picked cinema. On this show, we tell you the stories behind beautiful cinema. This is season two. We're calling it Only in Theaters. Every week, we tell you the story of a single cinema that made history. And the one we're talking about today has to be one of the unlikeliest. It really struggled for the first... 40 years. (laughs) That's Randy Green, a former worker at The Westgate, a floundering second-run theater in a Midwest suburb that somehow turned an odd movie about a May-December romance into one of the most beloved cult flicks of the 20th century. Just from the beginning, I couldn't stop laughing, and I still can't stop laughing. And I think of all these different scenes, well, we had to see it again. And again, and again. The 50-year saga of Harold and Maude and the Westgate. Take it, please. Enjoy the show. This is a story that seems like it could have only been dreamed up in Hollywood, but it happened in a neighborhood that's kind of the spiritual opposite of Hollywood, Morningside, part of a suburb just outside of Minneapolis. Morningside is a neighborhood in the suburb of Edina. But if you walk around Morningside, it it doesn't necessarily feel like the rest of Edina. 
Andy Sturdevant is a local journalist. He wrote about the Westgate in the online paper Min Post. Dinah has a reputation for being a very prosperous <laughs> suburb. There's actually a neighborhood called the Country Club District because it was <laughs> built on an old country club. And you walk through it and it feels like you're walking through a country club. They're just owning it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Morningside doesn't feel like that. Morningside feels a lot more like these commercial intersections that have, you know, diners and dry cleaners and, and just these types of businesses that everyday people patronize. In fact, if you walk around, a lot of the businesses will self-identify as Morningside businesses. A diner can be kind of a, a dirty word in the, the Twin Cities. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we don't want to be conflated with those cake eaters. Yeah. Don't let me in with those cake eaters. And back in the day, you could define the difference between the two places by their two neighborhood theaters, both built in the 30s and located six blocks away from each other, the Edina and the Westgate. Yeah, I mean, the Edina is definitely the one with the big, beautiful marquee, and it's right near a neighborhood called 50th in France, you know, so named because it's 50th Street and France Avenue. You know, the relative fanciness of the name France tips you off a little bit. It's a kind of place where you go see a movie and then you knock over to like a diamond store and, you wow. know, buy some, I don't know, maybe furs and stuff like that. It's so, like the can of Minnesota. It's like the can of the, the Southwest Metro. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, you know, if you've got your classic like snobs versus slobs thing going on, then yeah, the Westgate is definitely the more down market of the two which didn't matter at all to one Morningside local, a guy named Randy Green, who grew up loving not just movies, but movie theaters. I don't know. I, I've, ever since I was a little kid, when I, used to, when I went to movies when I was a little kid, I used to go in and sit down early before, the, you know, before everyone else got there almost. But I'd, I'd, I'd turn around, I'd watch the ushers, I'd turn around, look at the projection booth. I could see the guy going in little windows up there, moving around, getting things ready. The popcorn pops and all you all the smells and then the people coming in, all excited about seeing the movie. I like that feeling. That was kind of it was fun. And the place he got his fix was the Westgate. When I was a kid, it was the '60s. So for me, it was more the adventure action movies, uh, The Dirty Dozen. Keep your mouth shut, and your eyes open. You're on guard duty, maggot. Bridge and River Kwai. What have I done? Those kind of things I would watch. So it probably didn't surprise anybody when, age 19, Randy took a gig as assistant manager at the Westgate, despite its condition. Well, it hadn't changed much since it opened. It was, uh, had never been remodeled. By the time I was there, it was clean enough, but it, it was not well kept up. It had a new set of seats that were put in in the 60s, but they were used from a different theater that the company remodeled. So the seats were newer, better than the original seats, but they were still pretty used. Yeah. I'm, I'm remembering the kind of uh, spongy seats in the small theaters that I used to attend when I was little. They were kind of like oh, yeah. the seats yeah. themselves were kind of angled down. So you always had to slouch mm-hmm. in some way. Yeah, some of those were, <laughs> some were angled down. That's right. <laughs> of course, he could understand why the owners had to cut corners. For decades, the Westgate had been a minor second run theater, if it was lucky. It never was a big moneymaker. Because Edina always got the bigger movies after they had their big downtown premieres, and the Westgate got the leftovers from that. It really struggled for the first you know, 40 years. <laughs> and to be fair, back then, the Westgate wasn't alone. At this time, there were, you know, small one screen theaters that, you know, were built in the 1920s and the 1930s. And 
had been hit really hard by television, you know, in the 50s. And, and so a lot of them were starting to close. And a lot of the one screen theaters in the various neighborhoods had converted to a pornographic format. And so there was really a need for these smaller neighborhood theaters to think of interesting and innovative ways to get people in the door. And in 1970, at first it seems almost by accident, the Westgate did exactly that. Yeah, the Booker put in a movie, uh, Mel, Mel Brooks movie called The Twelve Chairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah! Yeah, yeah, yeah! Yeah, yeah, yeah! The Twelve Chairs is Brooks's second, probably least known movie. It's about a bunch of connivers trying to find diamonds hidden in one of, yes, twelve chairs. Among the pursuers, a religious nut played by a young Dom DeLuise. God sees! God sees all! Why do you think he gave me the strength to climb straight up a mountain wall and deny the same to you? There must be some reason. Yadi ta ta! The film's weird for the time, a mashup of slapstick and artiness that critics called uneven and audiences therefore mostly ignored. But not at the Westgate. Now, movies typically played the Westgate for one week, maybe two weeks. They always they got them after the downtown premieres, sometimes even a third run after the other neighborhood theaters had run it. But they put in the 12 chairs by Mel Brooks, and uh, it played for an incredible 12 weeks. People would keep coming back over and over to see it. It was really unheard of at the theater to have that movie last that long. Interesting. So after the 12 chairs, the Westgate went for another film in the same odd vein. Director Carl Reiner's 1971 dark comedy called Where's Papa? Will you move? Not tonight, Sydney. Get away from that door. I'm gonna choke your child. Come on, get away from the door. Whereas Papa had the same thing happen to it. It played horribly when it first opened up, and they put it in the Westgate, and it played for 36 weeks. It was a cult thing. It just people just coming back and back to see it. Why these movies work at the Westgate when they'd failed everywhere else? That'll always be a mystery. Maybe because admission at the Westgate was cheap, so easier for adventurous folks to take a risk. And then it snowballed. Word of mouth, I think, was the biggest thing. They put in these quirky comedies. They booked them exclusive, so that it was the only theater in town that could play it. And then people would come to see it, and they go, this is the greatest thing I've seen in ages. And they'd tell their friends, and then you come back. Whatever, the Westgate had found its angle and its audience. Yeah, I think they correctly sussed out that there was an appetite for less mainstream offerings. You know, you could go to the Edina and you could go see the, the Poseidon Adventure or whatever, you know, dumb big blockbuster had trickled out from downtown, you know, a couple weeks ago. Um, or you'd go to the Westgate and you could see something that was maybe kind of smaller scale and kind of weird. And you probably knew that there would be a bunch of other weirdos there too. To sate the weirdos, now the Westgate was on the hunt for more of these movies. And far away in Hollywood, the perfect pick, the queen mother of eccentric comedies, was about to be born. You met Charles Mulvihill at the beginning of this episode. His association with that movie had begun a few years earlier, in the late 60s. Back then, he was a low-ranking worker at a film production outfit called The Mirish Company, where he fell in with a legendary character. During this period, I met uh, Hal Ashby. He was currently going through a divorce, and he was living in the office where he was editing. So, you know, we struck up uh, a friendship. Well, we struck up a friendship. I mean, I used to go into the office, and he was staying, and uh, he was a prolific smoker of marijuana. 
So I'd go say hello and we'd commiserate and get stoned. Charles' new smoking buddy would go on to direct classics like Being There and Coming Home. But at the time, he was an Oscar-winning editor about to direct his debut film. And so I worked with him closely on the post-production of the, of the film Landlord. And uh, it was around that time that, uh, that he got the script for Harold and Maude. Harold and Maude was written by an unknown named Colin Higgins who got his big break when he handed the script to a Hollywood big shot whose pool he'd been cleaning. It's the story of a 20-year-old so bored with life, he's obsessed with death. He even drives a hearse. When his socialite mom tries to hook him up on dates with girls... I have here, Harold, the form sent out by the National Computer Dating Service. They screen out the fat and the ugly. He fakes outrageous suicides to drive the girls away. Then he meets an elderly woman at a funeral. What is your name? Harold. Harold Chasen. Oh, how do you do? I'm Dame Marjorie Chardin, but you might call me Maud. Maud was the world's oldest teeny bopper. She had a zest for life and was generous in passing what she knew on. We shall have to meet again. Ah, Tony, do you dance? Pardon me? Do you sing and dance? Uh, no. Uh, no. I thought not. Harold and Maude fall in love, make love, society disapproves, Harold tells society to shove it. And then, on Maude's 80th birthday, just when all seems idyllic... What?! Well, I'll just say, Harold has to deal with actual death. And somehow, that leads to a hopeful ending. Paramount Studios put Harold and Maude into production with Ashby directing, Mulvihill producing, and starring the venerable Ruth Gordon as Maude, and a newbie named Bud Court as Harold. Now, Paramount Chief Bob Evans was getting a rep for taking risks, but he and the studio had few illusions about what they had on their hands with this movie. Yeah, an art house film. It was meant to be a small-budget, human-interest story that they were promoting. That is, until? We took it out and we previewed it. And mind you, I mean, I, I think that even within the company, there was some skepticism, of, you know, about the subject matter and how is Hal going to pull it off, basically. And we had a screening, and I mean, it was a blowout. I mean, people loved that film. In fact, the head of distribution after the screening said, this preview is as good as a Jerry Lewis preview. <laughs> and... <laughs> Now, that was, because evidently Jerry Lewis previews, they were just blowouts. I mean, people <laughs> loved them. And so this was the best preview that they, I mean, they were really excited. So consequently, based on those previews, they opened it in Westwood at the Village Theater. Yeah, in Los Angeles, which is huge. Which it's, is, a, it's a big barn. I mean, it was, it was huge. And the Cornet Theater in New York. And, also, uh, also huge. These are like major first-run theaters. Yeah, and very prestigious houses. I mean, you know, big blockbuster films go there. Now, this is for a movie, by the way, that you just told me was originally intended to be this kind of small human interest story. Normally, you would not open that kind of film this way. Yeah, little, little art house film. But because the response from the previews was as good as it was, you know, they got really excited. They thought, wow, we can capitalize on it. But that was not how it went down. We thought that the film would do well. 
and certainly thought that it would qualify for Academy Award consideration. That's Charles Glenn. He was global head of marketing for Paramount, and he remembers the film came out December 71, prime Oscar season. And I, I think that, that was part of the thinking that if it got nominations, that those things could be merchandised in print ads, uh, on television commercials and radio commercials to help establish an audience. And, and that did not happen. In fact, according to Charles Mulvihill, quite the opposite. Well, I'll tell you how badly it bombed. The manager of the Coronet Theater loved the film, and he you know, would hire people with sandwich boards to go to the other theaters, offering, if they didn't like Harold and Maude, that he would give them their money back, and they still wouldn't go. And a week after it had opened, Bob Evans called Hal and said, well, on to the next one. Except it was pretty quickly apparent that that would be easier said than done. We were getting lots of scripts, you know, for Hal to consider directing. There were lots of possible projects coming in. And then the film got released, and it was as though someone had taken an axe to the phone cable. I mean, it stopped. I mean, it stopped dead. How could this have been? Maybe the competition? The same month, Dirty Harry had opened, along with Sean Connery's return as James Bond in Diamonds Are Forever. Or maybe it was the reviews. Oh, the critical response. <laughs> well, the first review that I read was in Variety. And the opening was, Harold and Maude is as funny as a burning orphanage. And generally, the reviews stank. But Andy Sturdivant says... Not everywhere. Like in Minneapolis at this time, you have Don Morrison, who was maybe the most, uh, you know, had the biggest kind of personality of all the, the movie critics. And so he really championed this movie. Like he loved it. The thing that he wrote about it was he called it a glorious addition to a class of movies that I might as well admit I love simply because they are. Other local critics dug it too. And still, even in Minneapolis, Harold and Maude opened and closed. And Charles Mulvihill thinks... He knows the ultimate reason why. When people ask you, what is Harold and Maude about? And you say, well, it's about this 20-year-old kid that meets an 80-year-old woman and she teaches him the way of life and they have sex. Anybody that you say that to just goes away. I mean, you can see their eyes flutter and they're gone. I mean, you've just lost them. In other words, it wasn't the kind of flick a blockbuster-style release was going to help needed to be seen by a very special audience who'd love it because of the weird plot and who'd tell others to go see it despite the weird plot. And there was a theater just outside of Minneapolis that had a lock on that kind of audience. The Westgate settles in for a long relationship with Harold and Maude. Coming up in just a minute, stay with us. Mubi is a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe, all of them handpicked by real people who really know movies. And with a new film debuting on the platform every single day, there's always something new to discover. So on this season of the podcast, we are talking about history-making experiences that were only possible in movie theaters. Hopefully it inspires you to love and support your local cinema that much more. And we've got a new thing going that can help you do exactly that. It is called Movie Go. And when you sign up, you get a free movie ticket every week to see a hand-selected film in theaters. 
Previous picks include award-winning films like Drive My Car, The Lost Daughter, Cha-Cha Real Smooth, and The Power of the Dog. MubiGo is now available in the UK, New York, and Los Angeles, and it is coming to more U.S. cities soon. To learn more, check out mubi.com go. Also, if you're going to be in Los Angeles... We have something very special for you this week. To celebrate our new season, we are partnering with the American Cinematheque to present a screening of the new 4K restoration of Harold and Maude this Saturday, July 15th at LA's Los Feliz Theater. Amy Nicholson of the movie podcast Unspooled will join me for an in-person pre-screening discussion about the movie and about this very show that you're listening to right now. For more details, check out the American Cinematheque's website. I hope to meet many of you there in person. And finally, after you finish listening to me, you can stream some of the films that we have featured on the podcast. All you got to do is subscribe to Mubi at Mubi.com and look for the collection called Featured on the Mubi Podcast that is on the Now Showing page. As always, you can find all the links you need in the show notes of this episode. Speaking of which, back to it. All right, so it's March 1972. And three months after Harold and Maude's bomb of a first run, it's about to open at the Westgate. And according to Andy Sturdivant, that timing was perfect. March in Minneapolis is miserable. Like, it's still winter. Like, it's still winter for six more weeks. Like, there is not a lot going on that touches the human soul in a way that... uh really makes you feel optimistic about the possibilities of life. And so I really, I, I think there's probably something to the fact that you've got this dark, weird little movie opening in the dregs of winter uh, in this, you know, kind of far-flung neighborhood theater um, that caters specifically to weirdos, to outsiders, to oddballs. And yeah, like that seems like a perfect recipe for it to become, you know, quote, a thing. And it was right off the bat. It opened on Wednesday. I, I worked on Thursday. But when I came in to work on Thursday, the people who worked the night before said, this is crazy. The place filled up during the middle of the week, and this is the middle of March, which you know normally is not that big a business there. And there was just this energy. And it was all young people, mostly young people in their 20s and the early 30s. What did you think of it when you saw it? I thought it was very good. People used to ask me what, uh, how, how you survive seeing the movie, the same thing for so long. And I said, it's actually a very good movie. I'm going to hold off telling you how long the movie eventually played at the Westgate, but for now, let's say long enough that Randy got to know the movie by heart. I have very special parts that I like to watch. So I was busy in the office doing something, and I heard that part coming up. I'd go down to the auditorium and watch my special parts. Which were your favorite parts? Well, he does that series of suicides. And when he, when Bud Court sets himself on fire. Harold is out in the garden, Candy, but he'll be here in a moment. Shall we uh, sit down? Yeah, there's a scene where Harold's mom has arranged a blind date with this girl named Candy. While the two women chat, through the window we see Harold douse himself with gasoline and strike a match. And that date that his mother's arranged for him is looking out the window at Harold burnt, going up in flames. <laughs> at which point Harold, still actually alive, suddenly appears at Candy's side. Yes, dear, here is Harold now. Candy runs from Harold in horror, and just as one of Cat Stevens' legendary soundtrack tunes kicks in... He looks at the camera, kind of nods at the audience, and says, yeah, you see what I'm doing? (laughs) 
we're, we're in on the joke that he's doing, which I think was one of the funniest things in the world. It's interesting, right? I mean, in a way, that's what maybe the attraction of that movie was to the audience, is that they were in on the joke. They were young people that were in on something that right. the rest of the world had decided was not funny. Right. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, that's definitely... But over time, word got out to the unhip world. We rarely went to the Westgate, but had unusual movies, and we usually just went to just usual movies. Marion Craycraft was 40 at the time, a housewife whose husband thought the very idea of Harold and Maude was... Distasteful, is what I'm thinking he thought, because of the ages between Harold and Maude. But I had a friend who already was into unusual movies, and she kept telling us about the 12 chairs and Harold and Maude. And eventually, I went to Harold and Maude. Tell me your you know, memories of seeing it for the first time. All right. I, actually, I was watching some of it again today. But my first memory of it is Harold hanging himself. So he was hanging there in the air, and the rope was squeaking. And in comes his mother. <laughs> I suppose you think that's very funny, Harold. Now get, come on, we're going to have dinner at 8 o'clock. And do try and be a little more vivacious. <laughs> so that's, that's my first memory of Harold. <laughs> it sounds like you were pretty delighted right away. Oh yeah, from the beginning I couldn't stop laughing and I still can't stop laughing. And I think of all these different scenes, well we had to see it again. She was not alone. And as Harold and Maude's run stretched from weeks into months, local arts writers realized something big was afoot. When the movie started gaining momentum, it became one of these topics that the newspapers could return to time and time again. I, I think I did a rough count, and there was at least 20 stories written about the Harold and Maude phenomenon at the Westgate. Now, if that sounds like overkill, you got to understand the very concept of a cult film was sort of new. The Rocky Horror Picture Show wouldn't hit theaters till years later, 1975. And even as late as 79, critic Gene Siskel had to explain the idea to his TV viewers. In the movie business, there's a peculiar creature known as the cult film. Films that aren't necessarily hits when they're first released, but eventually they find an audience and it's typically young people. So yeah, in 71, Harold and Maude's run was headline material. That media was television, Newspapers are all over the place about asking about the movie and how it survived so long. And that's actually when other theaters around the country started checking, what's going on with you guys? How, do you, how come you're holding this movie so long? One of those theaters was Detroit's Studio North, which saw what was happening at the Westgate and decided to book Harold for itself. Apparently, you know, when it opened again in Detroit, the ads in the newspaper said, Harold Mudd had Minneapolis rolling in the aisles, which is perhaps one of the great movie pull quotes of, of all time. The movie played Detroit for 72 weeks. Other theaters caught on and drew devoted audiences, but none of them topped the Westgate. At the 95th week, Harold and Maude beat the record for the longest running movie in Minnesota. Like in the history of the state? What, what held the record before that? It was The Sound of Music. <laughs> wow. Back in 1965, <laughs> it played at one of the downtown theaters here for 95 weeks. So Harold and Maude beat The Sound of Music. <laughs> and still it kept playing. It was enough to make even Charles Glenn, 2,000 miles away at Paramount Studios' marketing office, sit up and take notice. I remember discussing it with staff of ours and not knowing why. Why would people continue to populate the Westgate Theater Minneapolis for, 
years. And where would they draw an audience from? And then how do you fill those seats up? And then how do you, how do you fill it up 365 days, three times? I mean, it's extraordinary. And it, but, but, but there it was. It's a great thing to be a place where something goes right. <laughs> and for two years at the Westgate Theater, things have gone right for Harold and Moore. Probably the peak of this whole saga happened in March 1974, when Ruth Gordon herself appeared at the Westgate to celebrate the film's second anniversary. She'd also stopped by for the first anniversary, actually, but this time she brought along Bud Court. There's nothing anybody can say except thank you all for believing in the film. That night, the audience definitely included some true believers. There was a young man who, he held the record for having seen it the most times. I think he saw it over 200 times. And and apparently he struck up a friendship with Ruth Gordon and they had a correspondence that lasted for a couple of years after that. (laughs) So when when she's talking about the wonderfulness of life and these amazing things that happen, you know, it's not just lip service. Like there were actually these wonderful connections that were, you know, coming out of this phenomenon. Well, it's a great thing to be a place where things go right because I believe they're meant to, but a lot of times they don't. And so when they don't, we got to remember a time like tonight when they do go right. Yet meanwhile, just outside, some locals had gathered who weren't in a celebratory mood. Yeah, there was, on the second anniversary, as the audience started coming, the lines started forming outside the theater door, we noticed these people coming up with, with pickets in their hands. There's a photo of these people that ran in a local paper. Their picket signs read... Our plea to Westgate, your neighbors want variety. And why must the show go on and on and on? And it was it was people in the neighborhood that were demanding new movies because they were sick of Harold and Maude showing for two years. And, you know, at the distance of time, it's, it's hard to tell, like, how tongue-in-cheek it is or isn't. You know, irony doesn't travel well across decades. But it certainly seems to have stemmed from some, you know, actual deep-seated frustration. Oh, no, they, oh, they wanted a new movie. The protesters wanted a different movie. They were tired of that movie being there, and they wanted a change. So it was sincere. It wasn't like some ironic demonstration. It, no, 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 it was sincere. <laughs> I mean... Very sincere. But can I ask why? I mean, like, there's another theater just a few blocks away, the Adina. Yeah, but that didn't have the right kind of movies. That had regular run, run-of-the-mill run movies. I see. It was So it was people who were kind of like, you guys are the only game in town that's playing interesting movies. Bring us another interesting movie. Yeah. Well, soon enough, they got their wish. At the second anniversary, uh, it was a different feeling afterwards. They had two shows that night, and both shows were very busy and very full. But the next few weeks after that, it just felt different. You could see the energy was, was running out. And uh, see, that was in March when they had the uh, second anniversary. And then in May is when they pulled it. Were you sad at all? Yeah. It was funny. It was funny to be kind of sad about it. But uh, one of the funny things that happened is that the end of April, they put a notice in the paper last week. It, it just boomed. They started filling the theater up again. And so mm-hmm. after that one week, they go, okay, held over one more week. And, it, it, you know, I think people are coming back for that one more chance to see it at the theater. They did that about four weeks. And then finally they said they had to pull it. At the end of the last screening, the audience gave it a standing ovation. Douglas Strand, the guy who'd seen it 200 times, was quoted in the Minneapolis Star Tribune. It's the end of an era, he said. I feel kind of empty inside. 
But just as Harold and Maude was fading out at the Westgate, elsewhere, it was getting a whole new life. I'm John Hersker, and I'm the host of Flashback Cinema, which is a weekly program of classic movies in theaters across the country. John Hersker also worked in Paramount Pictures distribution for a while, but back in the 70s, he was manager of an art house called the Bryn Mawr Theater in Philadelphia. So Harold and Maude first played at the Bryn Mawr Theater in 1974. And their showing of the film was part of a kind of reissue that Paramount Pictures did in 1974. Yeah, the studio re-released the film and publicly chalked it up to theaters like The Westgate. Paramount launches the film uh, in New York and Los Angeles and in other cities with a very interesting and innovative marketing campaign with newspaper ads full of text, no images, just full of copy, explaining sort of the history of Harold and Maude up to that point, which was really kind of extraordinary, uh, yeah. describing how the film had been successful in the Midwest and, and sort of tweaking the nose of Los Angelinos and New Yorkers who might view their cities as being a little more advanced when it came to discovering films. And so the, the Paramount marketing team comes up with this ad says, what is it the Midwest knows that New York doesn't? So it's kind of like you, you think you're so great, New York and LA, but guess what? You weren't in on this fad. Well, exactly. And uh, it paid off. Uh, the Alston Theater in Boston opened the picture in May of 74, which they didn't know at the time. They were starting a 92-week run of the movie. Oh and the Bryn Mawr Theater, it was kind of a mainstay. We were single screen theater when we had an opening week in the schedule and nothing to play. You put in Harold and Maude, you do several thousand dollars worth of business. There's a great story that Ruth Gordon told in an interview she gave in 1983 that she had received a check in the mail from Paramount Pictures for $50,000. And she said, I thought it was a mistake. I thought it was a sweepstakes, you know, like a Reader's <laughs> Digest sweepstakes or something, she said, um, because I never could have imagined the movie would go into profit. And Ruth Gordon certainly knew that it had developed a cult following because she'd been to the Westgate Theater, but she probably thought that was some isolated thing and didn't realize this was something that was happening all over the country. Meanwhile, at the Westgate, Randy Green says Harold and Maude turned out to be a tough act to follow. Yeah, they, they tried. Um, they brought in a foreign film called One Tall, a Tall Blonde Man with One Red Shoe. It's actually A Tall Blonde Man with One Black Shoe, a French comedy about a hapless musician who's unwittingly mistaken for a super spy. Le type qu'on doit accueillir. Oui. Qui est-ce? Je ne sais pas. It was supposed to be a quirky comedy kind of thing. It didn't do that well. And then they tried one called The Queen of Hearts, and it's about an insane asylum in Europe during World War II. And again, it was one of those things that was its kind of quirky, kind of different, but it just never took off. And after that, they, they kind of pretty much gave up. The multiplexes were really spreading around town, and people just quit coming. They, they eventually closed in, in 1977. They closed it up for good. They turned the building into a dry cleaning place. And it just was... Uh, well, I didn't go there for years. <laughs> because it just was like kind of sad? I think, well, or mad. <laughs> More mad than sad. What did, they, what did they think they were doing taking down that theater that we grew up with, basically? But then let me ask you, it sounds like you didn't really see that many movies there other than Harold and Maude. No, no, I didn't. So why were you so sad when it went away? Because it was part of the, part of the neighborhood. It belonged. Yeah, I should say the Westgate had a public library in it. If you and your date got a window seat at the classic Convention Grill Diner across the street, you'd look out at the Westgate Marquee. 
Even if you weren't quite odd enough to see all the movies there, it was the neighborhood theater. And it was part of your life. Luckily, there were more where that came from. The Edina Theater is still there, the one that was six blocks south of us. The marquee is still there. The marquee is the same as it was. That's still there. In fact, that closed up during the pandemic, and uh, someone else is moving back in as a movie theater. Well, that's good. I mean, once again, the Edina Theater wins. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it wins again. But if Randy really wants to recapture the old days, there's another game in town. Called the Heights Theater. Reminds me a lot of the Westgate. It was, it's a neighborhood little theater. It's run by a guy, the kind of guy that might have saved the Westgate if he had been around at that point. It opened in 1926. And so it's, he's got it restored, but he's got a pipe organ in there. He runs first run movies, but he also runs a lot of specials. And so I go up there and help him out with the specials. Doing what? Crowd control, taking tickets, you know, just talking up with people. So I really, I get my movie theater experience there. And I get that same feeling when I walk in there and I say hi to everybody and I walk into the auditorium and I see all those empty seats. I go, yep, we're going to fill this place up. It's going to be exciting. That's the movie podcast for this week. Follow us to make sure you get a front row seat for more deep dives into great cinemas. Next week, in the gritty heart of 80s-era London, a cavernous movie palace beckoned to Britain's subcultures all night long. Two or three in the morning, you'd fall asleep for a while, and then you'd wake up from some dream, and then there'd be something on screen, and you wouldn't know what was your dream and what was on screen. The hallucinogenic tale of the Scala Cinema. Follow us so you don't miss it. Meanwhile, this episode was hosted, written, and sound designed by me, Rico Galliano. Beth Schiff is our booking producer. Stephen Cologne mastered and engineered. Martin Ostwick composed our original music. Thanks this week to Rachel Yang, Todd Melby, Austin Fast, Jill Craycraft, and the Edina Historical Society. The show is executive produced by me, along with John Baranachea, F.A. Checkerell, Daniel Kasman, and Michael Taka for MUBI. If you love the show, tell the world by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. It helps others find and love us, too. Also, if you've got questions, comments, or want to tell us some Harold and Maude trivia we failed to pack into this episode somehow, email us at podcastatmovie.com. And, of course, to stream the best in cinema, including some of the films we talk about on this very podcast, just head over to movie.com to start watching. Till next week, a Pepsi and some Twizzlers to use as a straw, please. Mm-hmm.